Amen. Praise the Lord. Turn your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. <laughs> no, really. Hebrews chapter 1. It's been so long since we started the book of Hebrews, we thought we'd just do it again. Now, in, uh, in uh, praying about what to do and, and uh, what direction to go and what to, to teach on uh, beginning tonight, uh, I was reminded by somebody that uh, when we first started the book of Hebrews, uh, since one of the first things that Paul identifies Jesus as better than was the angels, I said, apparently, and I think I remember saying it, I was a much younger man back then, so I'm not quite sure, but uh, apparently I said something about, you know, that it'd be good for us to do a study on the book, on, uh, on the subject of angels. So we're going to take the next couple of weeks and talk about angels. Amen? All right, Hebrews chapter 1. We believe Paul was the author of the book of Hebrews. And Paul's inspired by the Holy Ghost. We're going to start in verse 1. We'll work our way down to verse 4 and then uh, and then make some comments. God who at sundry times and in diverse manners, now that means different time periods and in different ways, spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days, so he's talking about this dispensation, the church age, this last uh, day period known as the church age, has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son whom he has appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And we'll come back over some of these, uh, these phrases, but please notice it says that Jesus was appointed heir of all things and by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus is the one that created the, the heavens and the earth. He's the one that created the universe. Who, speaking of Jesus, being the brightness of his glory and the expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. What that means is he created everything and it's him that keeps it all going. It's the word that Jesus spoke. Jesus is the one that said, let there be light, let the waters be divided and so forth. All the things that we have in Genesis chapter one. He's the one that identi- that uh, is identified as the, the author of the voice that spoke the worlds into existence, and it says that his voice, literally the word of his power, is what keeps everything together. There's um, uh, there's an interesting uh, scientific discovery that has been theorized for a long time, but has, uh, uh, well, it's being researched now, it's being identified, but they think they found what's called God particle. Now, what that is, is um, uh, science cannot, uh, science is kind of like the, the handbook on your car. It tells you, you know, how things work and stuff like that, but it can't tell you what to do with the car. It can give you the ins and outs on, on how things operate. It can tell you the, the, um, uh, the way things work, but it can't give you any of the, it doesn't give you any of the, the origin. It doesn't give you any of the, the, uh, uh, the purpose or anything like that. Well, science is a lot like that. Science can tell us how things work in the world. And as a result, science has a real problem with matter. You can, uh, prove that matter doesn't exist. You can scientifically prove that matter doesn't exist. Now, scientists don't make a big deal about this. You can well understand because if you can disprove matter scientifically, then how good is science? You know? So that's kind of one of those inside baseball kind of things. But the reason that, that you can uh, prove that matter doesn't exist is because we see everything as solid. We see this, this pulpit is made out of wood. We see that it is solid, and that's what we know of as matter. But there's more space in here than there is solid particles. And, and literally, if you took the space out, what you'd have left could fit in a teaspoon. It would weigh the same as it does now, but it would probably fit in, the, in a teaspoon or a small cup or something like that. Well, as a result, they don't know what keeps everything together. Science can't understand 
what keeps everything together. So they've theorized that there is some unseen, unknown, previously undiscovered particle that holds everything together. Well, when this was first theorized, they, they tested the theory and nobody could disprove it. So they thought, all right, this is possible. Well, what are we going to call this? Well, the guy that came up with the idea called it the God particle. Well, they think they found the God particle. They think they found what holds everything together. Now, the Bible tells you where it came from. It tells you what the God particle is. It says Jesus holds everything together by the word of his power. In other words, the word that was first spoken is what keeps holding things together. Here's another interesting thing about science. Science has identified that stars are continually being born in the universe. They've got some of it on, on uh, uh, record, visual record, from the Hubble telescope. They see stars being born. In other words, when God first said, when Jesus first said, let there be light, he never said stop. And so the universe continues to expand. Well, they don't know why. Nobody can explain why. But the Bible does. He upholds all things by the word of his power. So Jesus is the creator. This is going to have a bearing on, I'm not taking a side journey here. This is going to have a bearing on our subject. Jesus is the creator of all things, and he's the one that upholds all things through the word of his power. In other words, the word of God is what keeps everything together and keeps everything going. Not the Obama administration. Or anything else. Okay, verse 3 again. Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high, being made, notice verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, isn't it interesting that the first thing that Paul talks about, and, and we've, uh, if you were with us during any of this uh, series that, um, uh, that we did on the book of Hebrews, the theme of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better than anything else. Christianity, or relationship with Jesus, is better than Judaism. He's better than Abraham. He's better than the law. He's better than Moses. He's better than everything that the Jews held up as being their banner and their sign. This is what makes Judaism so great. Paul shoots holes in everything that they claim to have faith in or have confidence in because Jesus is better than it. But the first thing he starts talking about is being better than the angels. Now, there's a reason why this was not written to the Gentiles. He said there are a few things that are mentioned to the Gentiles, but most of the information that we have about angels as far as letters written to the church is written to the Jews because angels are big in Judaism, huge. And that's the first place that Paul starts attacking. That's the first leg that he breaks or, or, you know, knocks out from under Judaism. He says Jesus was made better than the angels because as far as the Jews were concerned, nothing's better than the angels. The angels were seen and, and viewed as an extension of God. But he says Jesus is greater than the angels, being made greater, so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For, here's why, here's how we know. For under which of the angels said he at any time? Now he's going to quote the Old Testament. He's going to prove to them from the Old Testament that which they claim to have confidence in, why Jesus is better than the angels. For under which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. What angel did he say that to? Well, nobody. And again, which angels did he say this? I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Nobody. But he said those things about Jesus. Right? And again, verse 6, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he said, and let all the angels of God worship him. So Jesus as a baby was greater than the angels. The angels were instructed to worship Jesus, meaning Jesus was greater than the angels. This is huge 
to the Jews. Huge. Because the angels were very prominent in Jewish history and in the deliverance of the Jewish people. We may get into this. We may look at one of these examples or some of these examples. One day, Hezekiah prayed and one angel came down and slew 185,000 Syrians in, in one day, one 24-hour period. So the Jews are big on angels. You know the story of Elijah and Elisha. Or I'm sorry, uh, Elisha and Gehazi. Where Gehazi gets up in the morning and the Syrian king has come and surrounded him. His whole army is surrounding the little shack that, uh, uh, that Elijah or Elisha and Gehazi are standing in. So he says, oh, no, master, we're in trouble. What are we going to do now? And he says to his servant, Elisha says to his servant, there's more with us than there are with them. Gehazi says, what do you mean? Then he prays. He said, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And he saw the, the hillsides full of angels with chariots of fire. And they were surrounding the Syrian army. And there was a flash of lightning, a flash of light that blinded all the Syrian army. Elijah, Elisha goes out and, and says one thing, and there's a flash of light, and all these guys are blinded, and he, he leads them into the camp of the Israelites. Angels are big in Jewish history. Angels are big in Jewish deliverance. They're used to angels appearing. They're used to angel, uh, an angel appeared, the angel of the Lord appeared unto Joshua before they went and took the city of Jericho. Big, huge. So he starts off kicking that leg out from under Judaism. Proving by the Old Testament that Jesus is greater than the angels. Now, the reason I'm talking about this, folks, and the reason I'm starting with this is because if we're going to understand what we need to know about angels and use that, that knowledge rightly, we're going to have to understand the nature of angels. So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, the nature of angels. Well, Paul continues. Verse 7. He said, and of the angels, he says, who make his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. So in other words, he's saying, and what the Old Testament does say about angels is that they're servants. But under the sun, he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath appointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth. Jesus did that. And the heavens are the work of thine hands. Talking about Jesus. They, heavens and the earth, shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all wax old as does a garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. He's talking about at the very end, the new heaven and the new earth. And they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. But to which of the angels said he at any time, sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool? Who did God say that to, he's asking. Do you say that to the angels? Nope. Said that to Jesus, who is his son. Therefore, verse 14, here's something we need to know about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Now, notice how he changes things. He's talking about Jesus being greater than the angels. And so he concludes by saying, therefore, we understand that the angels are servants. Ministering spirits mean spirit beings who are serving certain people. Well, who are they going to serve? Those who shall be heirs of salvation. Notice it doesn't say they serve Jesus. They're ministering spirits, spirit beings who serve. Who do they serve? The heirs of salvation. Now, in chapter 2, he goes on and continues making his case. We'll read a little bit of this. Verse 5, 
For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. Maybe we better back up and read verse 4 to get it in context. He said, um, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. He's talking about what God used to bear witness of Jesus being his son. For unto the angels has he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof he speak. Paul's making another point. He's going to a different point now. He says another thing about angels. Angels won't rule the world to come. We're speaking to you about the world to come, the world that's after Jesus comes again and takes his own into heaven. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There'll be a new world. And the angels won't rule that world. See, the Jews thought the angels ruled this world. But he's very clear about saying the angels are below Jesus. And since Jesus was here, Jesus is the one appointed heir of all things. The angels aren't even ruling here now. And they're sure not going to rule in the world to come. You know, there's uh Bible talks about the mystery of salvation. You go back to the Old Testament and it tells us about Jesus coming to the earth, about his virgin birth. It tells us prophecies about what he would do, the miracles and signs and wonders and things like that. It tells us about his death on the cross. It tells us about his resurrection. It tells us even about walking on the earth for 40 days after his resurrection. What it doesn't tell us is the church age. What the Jews were completely blind to from the Old Testament is the church age. Now, it talks about Zion, but they had no way to know that it was Zion was the church. Paul tells them in chapter 12 of Hebrews, he says, but you're coming to Mount Zion. In other words, he's saying everything about Mount Zion in the Old Testament refers to the modern-day church or the church in the church age, that following the, the, uh, uh, the ascension of Jesus from the day of Pentecost on, in other words. He said, that's talking about the church. But there was a gap in the Jewish understanding. They understood the Messiah would come. They understood that the Messiah would be a sacrifice. Didn't understand much about the cross, apparently. But they understood that, the, that God would offer a sacrifice and bring a Messiah to the earth. But then immediately what the Bible starts talking about next in the Old Testament is the millennial reign of Jesus. That's why the disciples kept asking Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? With a modern-day mindset, we know about the church age. We know about being made uh, uh, one in Christ. We know about uh, being made righteous. We know about those things. And so we think, why in the world are they fixed on, on Israel gaining power again? Because that's all the Old Covenant told them. That's all the law and the prophets told them. They told them the Messiah would come, and when the Messiah comes, he'll restore the kingdom to Israel. So that's why everybody kept asking, now are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Whether they knew this or not, that replies to the millennial reign of Jesus. Now, they may have been looking for him to do something natural on the earth. They may have thought the Messiah would come, do miracles, bypass the, the, the death on the cross, the resurrection, and some of that kind of stuff, and then immediately overthrow the Romans. Maybe that's what some of them thought. Apparently it is from some of the questions that they asked. But that's why they kept asking him, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't know a thing about the church age. So when Paul starts attacking their core beliefs saying Jesus is greater than the angels. Now he says, and that world to come, that restoration of the kingdom of Israel that you've all been looking forward to, that all of you asked Jesus about when he was around, the angels aren't going to rule there either. Keep that in mind because he's talking about worlds to come. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Now, verse 6 is interesting because he's talking about angels. It's easy for us to read this and say, But one testified. Well, that was David. David testified in Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him? 
But the grammatical structure of this is where he says, for unto which of the angels has he put in uh, subjection the world to come? But one, meaning one angel, said this. See, the Jews understood that Psalm 8 was David prophesying on behalf of an angel, speaking about what an angel said at the creation. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Now, the context is who's going to rule in the world to come. That's what he starts talking about in verse 5. He continues, one in a certain place, this is David in Psalm 8, telling what the angels, by the Spirit of God, telling what the angels thought or said at the creation of man. But what is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Now, this word um, angels here in the Greek means messenger. But in the original Hebrew that Psalm 8 is quoting, er, that this is quoting from in Psalm 8, literally is the word Elohim. Thou hast made him a little lower than God. So if you're going to go back to the best evidence, Psalm 8, verse 6, something like that, 4, 6, somewhere around there, is the angel saying, what is man that you are mindful of him? You have made him a little lower than yourself, meaning higher than us, a little lower than yourself. Thou crownest him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of thine hands. Thou hast put all things under sub, into subjection under his feet. Whose feet? Jesus? No, man's feet. Now, what does all things mean? He's talking about creation. He's talking about when God made Adam the God of this world. He put all of the creation. God said, let man have dominion over all the works of our hands. How much is all? If language means anything, all means everything God created. That means Adam was the ruler of the world. God's the creator, but Adam was the ruler of the world. And the angels are astonished at this. Keep that in mind. There's going to be a reason why they're astonished. They're shocked. You're going to give man control of everything that you made? They sound almost jealous, don't they? Keep that in mind. There's going to be a reason why this is there. Thou crowned him with glory and honor. Oh, verse 8, I'm sorry. I've already gone through verse 7. Thou hast put all things into subjection, in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. In other words, it doesn't look like everything's under us, but that's the way God set it up where man was concerned. Now, here's the reason why we know he's talking about man and not about Jesus. Notice the next verse. But we see Jesus. So he's just been referring to, quoting Psalm 8, was man and the authority that man was given in this present world. And the angels are saying, wow, what's that about? But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Again, this is the word uh, messenger, agalos, in Greek. It does not have an Old Testament reference, but if he's making a comparison between Psalm 8, where it says man was made a little lower than the angels, meaning literally God a little lower than God, then we have to assume that he means the same thing when he says Jesus, who was made a little lower than God, in that he became man. Jesus was God. He was equal with God. He was co-equal and co-eternal. So in that sense, he was on the same level as God, but he was made a little lower in his humanity. 
Literally, this means he set aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth to be a man. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than God. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. For, verse 10, it became, it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. In bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Now, here's what I want you to see. It says twice in these passages that we just read that Jesus made everything and that everything was made for him. Did you notice in verse 2, I think we mentioned in verse 2, that Jesus was appointed heir of all things? Yeah, verse 2, he was appointed heir of all things. Let me read something to you from Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I believe it is. Uh, better back up. Verse 14. In whom we have redemption through his blood. Obviously talking about Jesus. Even the forgiveness of sins. Who is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of every creature. Verse 16. For by him, by Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. Well, the things that he's talking about are beings in heaven. That would have to include angels. Right? Let me read it again. For by him, by Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Well, angels are in heaven, aren't they? That would have to include them. If all means all, that would have to include them. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Now, it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, that looks like a scripture that talks about the devil. And that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual wickedness, and, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places and, and so forth. And so people automatically assume that those words are talking about the devil, but it's not. It's talking about God having order in the angelic ranks. It's talking about the order of angels here. Now, obviously, the devil has copied God's order with evil spirits. And that's where our wrestling is, according to Ephesians chapter 6. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the devil's forces, the order that the devil has set up in, uh, in as far as demonic powers and so forth are concerned. But this is talking about God's order of angels. And it says Jesus made them all. Whether they be, let's read them again, whether they be principalities or thrones, I'm sorry, or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things consist. So what does that tell us? That confirms to us about the ministering spirit stuff. Jesus is the one that created angels to be servants. To be servants. He made his ministers, uh, he made the, the angels ministering uh, ministers of fire, flames of fire. In other words, they're servants intended to carry out the plan of God. Now with that in mind, turn with me over to Second Peter. Second Peter. Peter's going to get in on this, and he's going to tell us some things. Remember, Paul started off in Hebrews 1, 1, talking about God in different time periods, how God spoke and how God dealt with man in different time periods, and, and what happened in different time periods. And it's that Jesus was appointed heir of all things. By the way, let me, uh, let me make this comment while you're turning over 2 Peter. Uh, it's 2 Peter chapter 2, I believe it is. Let me make this comment. For Jesus to be appointed heir of all things, all things had to have been created. For example, if I leave a, an inheritance to my children, 
they're not heir of everything. They're just heir of everything that I own. Right? If I don't own IBM, they're not an heir of IBM. But they're an heir or their inheritance is everything that I, that belongs to me. If that's the way the will is set up. Right? Well, if Jesus is uh, an heir, appointed heir of all things, that has to mean that all things were created, including the angels and their positions and so forth as well. So Jesus not only created them, but through his death on the cross, he was elevated and received a name through his work on the cross, his work of redemption, so that he's not only the creator, but now he's earned it. Now, here's the thing about an heir. An heir doesn't earn anything. It's just given to them. But somebody, if, if my dad leaves me an inheritance and his dad left him an inheritance, somebody along the way had to earn it, right? Jesus created it, and then he came to earth and earned it. That's going to be significant. Why? Because you're a joint heir with him. Well, then if he's an heir of all things, what are you a joint heir of? All things. And that all things has to include angelic powers. Because we just read in Colossians chapter 1 that he created those two. He made all those things. They were made for him. And then he became the heir of all things through his work on the cross, his sacrifice, his death, burial, and resurrection. So he has inherited the angelic powers. He set that aside when he came to the earth. The more I study on redemption, the more I realize what Jesus did when he came to the earth, the more I recognize how everything was riding on what Jesus did. And I don't know, I, I never really consciously thought this, but I guess somehow in the back of my mind I thought, well, if, if something had happened, God would have snatched him up and, and, and saved him somehow. Not so. When Jesus came to the earth, everything was riding. He was all in, to use a poker term. Literally, he was all in. Everything was riding on this one operation. To the devil, a lot of it was a covert op, but it was foretold in the Scripture. It was right out there in the open. The devil just wasn't smart enough to figure out what was going to happen. But everything was riding on that. Jesus could have failed. Jesus had the ability to sin, and he had the right to sin. He could have failed anywhere along the line. That's why it's so significant when it says he was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. He conquered every temptation. Aren't you glad it wasn't left up to you and me to do that? We get through a day conquering temptation. We think, man, wow, we're really doing great. All right, Second Peter chapter 2. Let's start reading in verse... Uh, well, I'm going to read the whole thing here. Let's start in verse 4. The context of this is God knows how to deliver those, deliver the godly out of temptation. The, the, look at verse 9 first. This is what we're headed to. For the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Now, that, everything he's going to say that we're going to read is leading up to that point. So where he starts is this. Because God knows how to reserve how to protect the, uh, deliver the godly out of temptation, but he also reserves the ungodly for judgment. Notice it says in verse 4, For God, if God, spared not the angels that sinned. Now, you know the story about how the Bible tells us in Revelation how that the devil took a third of the angels and rebelled against God? Those angels that sinned were the third of the angels. 
So it said, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, literally Tartarus in the Greek, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment. Let me stop right here. We'll pick this up, but let me stop right here for a second. That means the angels that fell with Satan cannot be demon spirits operating in the earth. Now, I'm not going to try to tell you who they are. There are different ideas and different different speculations that we could make and so forth. I, I know what satisfies me from the scripture. But whatever you're thinking about demon spirits, they can't be the angels that sinned or fell with Satan. Because the Bible says specifically that they are reserved in the chains under judgment, the judgment day. In other words, they're not operating anywhere. They're, God put them in prison. They're in a holding cell until time for sentencing comes around. So back to verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, along with Lucifer, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, folks, I personally believe, you judge this for yourself, but I personally believe the translators really, really, really missed the boat on the diverse division here. Because what does sparing not the old world have to do with Noah? Well, some people would say, well, that's what it's saying. It's saying that the world was destroyed by the flood, but God saved Noah, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Was Noah's day the old world? If Noah's day was the old world, then what's the world he's talking about in verse 4? I believe it should read like this. For if God, verse 4, if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment and spared not the old world, period. Verse 5, but God saved Noah. Now, what makes me say that? Verse 9. Because the whole context of what he's talking about is God delivers the godly out of temptation, but he reserves the, the, the unjust to judgment. Verse 4 is all about the unjust being reserved unto judgment. Verse 5 is about God delivering the ungodly. And I would submit to you folks that the, it wasn't a new world when Noah, after the flood in Noah's day, when the flood waters receded. That's not a new world. It's not a new world system. It started a different dispensation. But it's not like man had no authority before Noah and then all of a sudden man was given authority. It's not like Adam was given authority according to uh, Psalm 8. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And then when Noah came along, man lost authority. That's not a new world. The only thing that happened in Noah's day was that the sinners perished. And God delivered Noah and his family from destruction. The old world he's talking about is when the angels sinned. Now, why is that significant? Well, let me keep reading. We'll read down through verse 9 and then I'll make some comments. Verse 6, And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example or an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and deliver just lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. In other words, he's saying, okay, we got 
Three different periods here. Verse 4, when the angels sinned, God didn't spare any of them. Verse 5, in Noah's day, he delivered the godly and destroyed the ungodly. In verse 6 and 7 and 8, he's saying in Sodom and Gomorrah, God delivered Lot and his family, but the wicked perished. And that's what verse 9 is all about. For the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and... He also knows how to reserve the judge, the unjust into the day of judgment to be punished. Well, where, who, who was delivered in verse four? Nobody. So what's he saying? He's saying the old world wasn't spared. Now, why is that significant? Because the angels controlled the old world. The angels had dominion in the old world. And that's why Psalm eight is so significant where one of the angels looks at the creation of man and says, or they see what God's plan is. Let us make man in our own image and let them have dominion over the works of our hand. The angels look at that and say, you're going to give man control? Why? Because what they've seen, what they've seen is, is Satan, who was Lucifer, rather, not Satan, but Lucifer, who was the one in charge of the angelic forces, the angelic dominion of the old world. We can prove that through several different scriptures. He's the one in charge, the anointed cherub that covers, as the Bible calls him. In other words, he's the leader. And he says, I will exalt my throne above the heavens. Now, here's where things went wrong as far as the old world was concerned. He had the ability to rebel, but he didn't have the right to rebel. Why? Because angels have always been created as servant beings. He had the ability to rebel, he had the power to rebel, but he didn't have the right to rebel because he was ruling the earth under God's dominion. He was in charge, but it's like he was a hired servant. And the hired servant decides he's going to take the ranch over from the owner. Well, he may have the power to do that. He may pull out his guns and have the power to do that, but he didn't have the right to do that. And so what happens? God takes him and the third of angels and casts Satan down to the earth. Lucifer then becomes Satan. The third of the angels are put in prison to be held unto the day of judgment. Let me prove that to you. In the, the book of Jude, the little postcard book of Jude. Only one chapter, verse 6. Jude tells us the same thing. Holy Ghost says, by the, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established, though we know this is true. Verse 6, and the angels which kept not their first estate, that means their first position, ruling, along, ruling under Lucifer in the old world, in other words, the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, hath, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of that great day. So we've got two witnesses that tell us about the angels in the old world. That's why the angels look at man's existence or man's creation. And they said, you're going to give dominion and authority. You're going to give control of this new world, man's world, our present day world. You're going to give authority of that, of that world unto man. And the Bible says that God put everything under man's dominion. Nothing was left outside of man's dominion. That tells us why Satan was so keen on getting Adam and Eve to fall. Because he knows if he can steal their authority, he can still do his work here on the earth. And that's what he was after. That's why he attacked what God said. Now, man had both the right and the ability to rebel. 
And they did. That's why it was different. That's why rebellion, man's rebellion, was something that caused him to fall into spiritual death, where Lucifer's rebellion caused him to be cast out into the earth and lose all of his position as a heavenly being. Do you understand where we're going with this? Let me prove it to you. Two scriptures. Look with me to Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Let's start with Ezekiel 28, and then we'll go immediately back to Isaiah's reference. And again, the reason that we have two references here is because the Bible, the principle of the Bible is you don't build a doctrine off of one scripture or one passage. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. In other words, anything that the Holy Ghost is trying to teach us, he'll tell us at least twice through Scripture, so that we can compare Scripture with Scripture, so that we can be doctrinally sound. Ezekiel 28. Let's start in verse 11. Here's Ezekiel speaking. He says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him. Now, Tyre had a, had a physical king that was an enemy of Israel at that point in time. But notice what he's talking about. He said, Take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Wow, this king of Tyrus must have been something, huh? Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. That's interesting. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. That probably means, and this is talking about Satan, it's talking about Lucifer in the old world. It probably means that Lucifer was in charge of the praise of God in the old world. Got to watch out for the music ministers. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. So this is created being. Something that, someone that Jesus created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Now, folks, you can very readily see that no man fits this description. He can't be talking about a physical king of Tyre. So what's he talking about? Well, remember when Jesus was tempted of the devil after fasting in the wilderness? The devil came with three temptations. One of the temptations was he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. He said, I'll give you the power and the glory of all these things if you'll fall down and worship me, for this power has been delivered unto me. In other words, he's saying, because this has been given to me. Satan is the is the ruler. He's the, the, the literally the god of world governments. Don't put your trust in government, folks. It's being ruled by the devil. Even good rulers are working in an ungodly system. Well, wait a minute. I thought God gave man dominion here on the earth. I thought he made everything under man's subjection or subject under man. How did Satan, how was Satan delivered the power of world governments? That's part of what he got when he deceived Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve rebelled, they gave Satan dominion, and that's why 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 calls Satan the god of this world. Satan wasn't created to be the god of this world, this present world. 
He was created to be in charge of uh, and rule over other angels in the old world, apparently, because it says you're the anointed cherub that covers. That means you're the ruler. Now, folks, I would submit to you that this can't be talking about the Garden of Eden uh, when uh, Adam and Eve were there. Satan did not walk up to Eve and Eve say, wow, look at those diamonds on you. You are really sharp. That is not the form that he appeared to her. Not in any stretch of the imagination. He has already fallen. This is talking about prior to his fall. And it goes further to say that. It tells what his, uh, what his uh, judgment was. Notice verse 15. Thou was perfect in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. Notice it says you were perfect, you were created perfect, but you originated iniquity. Some people get all bent out of shape and try to figure out, well, if, if Satan fell and if Satan rebelled against God, and then and, but God created Satan, God must have been the creator of sin. No, the Bible says it's not the way it worked. Again, it goes back to right versus ability. Satan had the ability to rebel against God. He didn't have the right to because he was a servant. He didn't have dominion in and of himself. He wasn't delivered dominion over the earth like man was delivered dominion over the earth. And that's the very reason that the angels are aghast when God said, let us make man in our own image. Uh-huh. In your image, we're not even made like that. And let them have dominion over the works of our hands. You mean not as servants? Well, what about us? That's where you can almost hear the jealousy in their voice. The Bible says, uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, it says, The angels desire to look into our salvation. Do you realize with as much as people think and ooh and ah and have all kinds of different ideas about angels and, and, and revere them and all, whatever people do, they're jealous of you. Angels wish they had what you've got. We look at angels in strength. They're warrior angels. If you've been watching the Bible series, you know they're ninja angels. Maybe not, but nevertheless, that's the way they're portrayed. We look at angels as great in strength and mighty and all this kind of stuff. We see them able to, to carry out the plan of God and, and just slice through all the stuff that's here on the earth that looks to us to be such tremendous obstacles and stuff like that. And the Bible says the angels want what you've got. Now, folks, again, we're talking about the nature of angels. It's important for you to know these things so that when you see what the Bible says about angels and see what the Bible says about you putting angels to work, you know where you stand. Thou was perfect in the days that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. And thou hast sinned, therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain. By the way, the merchandise means business. It means employment. There was something going on that Satan was in charge, or Lucifer, excuse me, that Lucifer was in charge of in the old world that was a functioning society. Now, whatever it was that was here wasn't man because man doesn't come on the scene until uh, until uh, Adam. And that's what Psalm 8 refers to. That's when the angels first look at man or God's plan to create man and say, what? You're going to do what? So whatever was there wasn't man. What was that? Well, what was there, Pastor Mike? I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm not that smart. 
If the Bible tells us I haven't found it yet, I'm still looking though, so if I find it, I'll let you know. By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence. In other words, you was lifted up in pride. Everything was going so well. It's kind of like Lot and Abraham. Lot was being blessed because of the blessing that God made to Abraham, the promise God made to Abraham. So Lot says, well, we're too big. I need to separate from you. I'll take Sodom. Good move. I, I, I think that happens more often than we think. A lot of times people are blessed because they're riding with somebody else who the blessing of God is on, and they mistake it by thinking that the blessing is theirs because of what they're doing. And as soon as they separate, they find out, oops. By the midst of, uh, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned, therefore I will. Here's what God says. Now it's, um, um, Hold your finger here. We're going to come back to Ezekiel 28, but I want you to look at Isaiah 14 because Isaiah 14 and Isaiah 15 are mirrors. There are five things that God, that Satan, that, excuse me, Lucifer says in Isaiah 14, and there are five things that God replies in Ezekiel chapter 28. So having gotten the basis for Ezekiel 28, let's go to Isaiah 14 and read some of this. Let's see where we want to start reading here. Verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which did weaken the nations? Now, what nations is it talking about him weakening? It's calling him Lucifer, so it can't be talking about the present world. Because Lucifer has had no dealings with the present world. Lucifer is an old world name when he was the anointed cherub that covers. He hadn't been the anointed cherub that covered since Adam was made ruler of the earth or God of this world. So the fact that it calls him Lucifer means it was the old world. You with me? So it says, how did thou, we- how didst thou weaken the nations? What nations did he weaken? He's not talking about the present day weakening. He's not talking about stuff that the devil's doing now as Satan. He's talking about what he did to the old world. The world that God did not spare. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? How did he weaken the nations? Because he took a third of the angels and rebelled against God. And what did God do? God cast him to the earth. For thou hast said, here's what Satan said, or Lucifer said, thou hast said in thine heart, here's the original sin. He said, I will ascend into the heaven, which means he was below the heaven. Well, earth is below the heaven, isn't it? If he was a ruler of the earth then that would fit. He wants to be ruler of heaven too. Second thing, he said, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, which means he had a throne and it had to be located below the stars of God. That makes him ruler of the earth. Third thing, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. So that means he's below that. He's talking about, I want to sit on God's throne, literally, is what that's talking about, what he's referring to. I want to sit on God's throne. I'm not satisfied to sit on the throne of the earth as God's servant carrying out his will here in the old world. I want to sit on God's throne. Well, good luck with that, Mr. Lucifer. So what's that? That's the third thing. Fourth thing is verse 14. 
I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, which means he's below the clouds. Folks, can you get the picture here? He's ruling in the earth. Well, we know that's not from the time of Adam forward, so that it has to be the previous world or what Peter called the old world. Fifth thing he said is he said, I will be like the most high. I want to be God. I'm not satisfied to just sit on God's throne. I want to be God. Now, folks, um, well, with all due respect to the devil, how stupid can you be? What created being would ever say to the immortal God, I want to be God? Yet that's what he's saying. Remember, remember, that's what he tempted Eve with. Oh, you're not going to die if you eat the fruit of the tree of the good, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God knows you'll be like him. That's what got him in trouble. I will be like the most high. Verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to the, to hell to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble and that did shake kingdoms? That made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof that opened not the house of his prisoners. Now folks, I would submit to you that whatever trouble he's creating in the world, he's not making the world a wilderness. When he gets one nation to, to, to engage in war against another nation, he's not making the world a wilderness. This word wilderness literally means that which is described in Genesis 1-1, the earth was without form and void. Or 1-2, I guess it is. It's talking about the old world. And it's saying that on the time that we're able to finally see what Lucifer, then Lucifer, now Satan looks like, everybody is going to look at him and say, you got to be kidding me. This is the guy we were afraid of? This is the guy that we had such a hard time resisting? This is the one that deceived us? This is the one that made us turn away from God against our better judgment? This is who we chose to follow from time to time when we were deceived? Read it for yourself. I'm not reading anything into it, am I? They shall narrowly look upon thee and say, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble and that did shake kingdoms? That made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof? Folks, I would submit to you that these cities were in the old world. He's not talking about cities today. He's talking about stuff in the old world. Everything he's talking about Lucifer being cast down to earth is talking about what existed before Satan was cast out of heaven. Remember in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus, after the 70 come back and say, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us in your name. Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. He's not saying as soon as you use my name, then Satan fell. He's saying the reason my name works is because Satan was cast out of heaven as described here in Isaiah 14. When he rebelled with a third of the angels. Folks, I'm okay with you being quiet, but I want to make sure you understand what I'm saying. Okay? Are you with me? Is what I'm saying clear? I'm trying to go slow. This is slow for me. I'm sorry. And I understand if you don't get all of it, that's fine. But I want you to understand it so you've got something to think on and study or meditate on afterwards. Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake heaven, that shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness, that destroyed the cities thereof, and that opened not the house of his prisoners? 
Notice it says that Satan, Lucifer, has prisoners. Now, in my opinion, whoever these prisoners are are the demon spirits today. We know they can't be men because it's only with the creation of Adam and Eve that the angels say, what is man? So whatever was before that can't be mankind. It can't be human. It has to be a spirit being because evil spirits are spirits. Well, what makes the difference between an old world spirit and man? I have no idea. But I know this. I know Jesus says that one of the main purposes of evil spirits is to embody someone. Evil spirits seek to embody human beings. Why? Well, I can't come up with any answer other than they once had bodies. They're seeking a way to express dominion or control. And without a body to possess, there's no way they can. Remember, Jesus said, when an evil spirit is cast out of a man, he walks the dry places of the earth and says, I know what I'll do. He seeks rest and finds none. And he says, I know what I'll do. I'll go back to the house that I inhabited. And he goes back. And if he finds it swept, empty, but clean, in other words, it hadn't been refilled with with the word, he goes back in, takes seven more, and the state of that person is worse than the first. It indicates that the devil's looking to uh, evil spirits, rather, are looking to embody some type of flesh. When Jesus cast the demon spirits out of the madman of Gadara, they implored him to let us go into the pigs. Evil spirits are looking for some house to live in. Okay. Notice here in Isaiah 14, the fourth, the five things, I'm sorry, that uh, Lucifer said. I will ascend into heaven, number one. Number two, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. Number three, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Number four, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Number five, I will be like the most high. Back to Ezekiel chapter 28. Verse 15. Thou was perfect in the day, in thy ways from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee by the multitude of thy merchandise they have filled with, filled the midst of thee with violence and thou hast sinned. Therefore, here's God's five things. I will cast thee out as profane out of the mountain of God and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thy heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thy, thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. Number three, I will cast thee to the ground. Number four, I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Verse 18, thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities, by the iniquity of thy traffic. Therefore, will I bring forth a fire from the midst of thee and it shall devour thee. Number five, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. So every time that Satan said, I will do this, God said, here's what I will do. And again, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10, I think it's verse 17, he said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Folks, Satan's rebellion against God lasted about a second. He approached the throne of God and was cast out of heaven like lightning. There was not some great war in heaven where there was a struggle. The devil was winning a little bit and then God gained momentum. And oh, it looked like the devil was going to win, but God finally came through at the end. And the last scene is the angels and God sitting there all worn out. <sighs> Boy, I hope we don't ever have to do that again. Now, Jesus said, I beheld Satan fall as lightning from heaven. Crash. Satan rebelled against God. God went, boom. 
You've seen lightning fall from heaven, haven't you? How it drifts slowly. <laughs> casually. And finally hits the ground. No. Lightning flashes and everybody jumps. Lightning hits the ground and everybody freaks. That's what Jesus described Satan being cast out of heaven was like. Okay, so what do we know? We know that angels were always intended to be servants. Never given dominion like man. Because angels question the dominion that God planned for mankind. What else do we know? We know that angels were at God's direction in authority here on the earth in the old world. They ruled the old world. Who rules this world? Man does. That's why Jesus had to come back and redeem us. Redemption wasn't for the angels of the old world. He spared not any of those angels. And the Bible says that just as those angels that fell were reserved under chains in darkness, under the judgment day, it says now that the angels that stayed with him, the two-thirds of the angels that stayed with God, as ministering servants who are still available to us today, they now are sealed just like we are sealed when we got saved. They've made their eternal choice, but they would love to have what we've got. And then it tells us that in the new world, Jesus will rule, but we will too. Now, folks, let me, uh, let me point something out to you. I know to some people this is a real different and strange kind of doctrine. I understand that. I understand that not a lot of people have have put study into this. And so some people may be sitting here thinking, I don't know how to take this. And so the question may be, does anybody else believe this? Or is this just one of Pastor Mike's stuff? Is this just one of his ideas about something? Turn with me to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. I know I'm a little over time, but I'll just, I'll try to go through this quickly. John chapter 10 tells us, gives us a record of something that is quite astounding. Now, John chapter 10 is going to be Jesus quoting from Psalm 82. So if you want to get a head start and turn back to that, hold your place there too, then that would be fine. We'll start reading in John chapter 10. Jesus says, uh, well, let's just start in verse 30. We're going to pick this up kind of in the middle of the story, but I, I think you'll get the gist of it. Jesus said, I and my father are one. Verse 31. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered and said, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of these works do you stone me? And the Jews answered him saying, for a good work we stone thee not but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. Please notice that. Their problem is when, they, he, when Jesus said, God and I are one. In other words, God and I are one. One and the same means I'm equal with God. For Jesus to say I'm in God is to say that I am one with God. Folks, there's a, a, a correlation there. For you to say you're in Christ is to say you're equal with Christ. And the Bible says Jesus has been appointed heir of all things. That means you're a joint heir of all things. Now, Jesus was not appointed heir of all things until his, until he was raised from the dead. That's when he obtained a name that was greater than every other name. Until then, he was the creator of everything. And as the creator of everything, it was under his control. But that's why redemption is so critical for us to understand, I think, 
Well, let me say it this way. The more I understand about redemption, the more I appreciate my Lord Jesus. Because he set all of the creator stuff aside. He owned everything. Everything was created by him and for him. It's at his disposal. That's what he set aside to come to the earth to put everything on the line so that you could be one with him. So after he was raised from the dead, then he was given a name, and that's when he was appointed heir of all things. Everything came under his power, not because he's the creator of it, but because he earned it through a sacrifice. Now, when Jesus says, when he's here on the earth, my father and I are one, he's saying, I'm in the father and the father is in me. And the Jews wanted to kill him for that. So Jesus questions them. They said, we don't want to stone you because of the good things you've done, but because you make yourself as God. Jesus answered them and said, is it not written in your law? Here's what is quoted in the Old Testament. I said, you are God's. Now, I'm going to go back. If you've got a reference Bible, you'll notice that it says that's Psalm 82. I'm going to go back to Psalm 82 and read what it says. Psalm 82, verse 1. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. There are three words that are used here that's important for you to understand. The first word, God, is the word Elohim. The second word, mighty, is the word El, which Elohim comes from. The third word, gods, is the word Elohim. So literally, it should read this way. Elohim stands in the congregation of Elohim. He judges among the Elohim. Who's he talking about? He's talking about man. He's saying man was the one given authority and dominion on the earth. That's why the angels are saying, you're going to do what? Man? Your image? Dominion? Over everything? You're going to put, you're, you're going to put everything you created back in the hands of someone that has the ability and the right to rebel against you after what you just saw Lucifer do. Now here's Jesus quoting an Old Testament Psalm, where God is saying that he judges in the midst of man, and he's put man on his own level. That's kind of hard to accept on one level, isn't it? It's God saying, I'm making you equal with me. Folks, Adam was made equal with God. There was nothing about man that was inferior, nothing about Adam that was inferior. Now, once he fell, that's a different ballgame. But once Jesus came and redeemed us, he restored us back to the place where we are in Christ, equal with Jesus, joint heirs with Jesus, and therefore one with God, one with the Father. That was Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Father, that you may be in them even as you are in me. Me in them, you in me. And we're all together. He's talking about dominion. So Elohim stands in the congregation of the Elohim. He judges among the Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly? Now here's man's question. Since you've been made equal with God, why are you messing around with sin? Why are you living like mere men? Paul said it that way. Don't live like mere men. Folks, if you're in Christ, you're not a mere man or a mere woman. So why do you live like that? Why do you let the circumstances and situations of this life hold you back? You're not subject to the stuff that the devil brings. You may have to endure some of it, but you can always endure it and go through, come out the other side victorious. 
So what are you living like mere men for? That's the scripture that Jesus is quoting when they're complaining because he's making himself equal with God. So Jesus apparently believed this stuff. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Defend the poor and the fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and the needy. Deliver the poor and the needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, here's God speaking first person. I have said, you are God's. This is the word Elohim. That's what Jesus quotes in John chapter 10. Doesn't the Old Testament, the one that you rely on, the one that you trust in, doesn't the Old Testament have a reference where God said, I said you are God's, you are Elohim, which is equal with God? Elohim literally means the Trinity. The three person of the Godhead. That's what Jesus quotes. Is it not written in your law that God said you are God's, you are equal with him? And all of you are children of the Most High. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Why? Because you're not living up to who you are. Verse 8. Arise, O Elohim. It's translated God in the King James. It's the same word Elohim. Arise, O Elohim. Judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. He's not saying for God to arise. He's saying for man to arise. He's saying live up to who you've been made. Back to John 10. Jesus answered them, verse 34, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, meaning the Old Testament, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the Son of God? Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's saying if that scripture belonged to people under the Old Covenant, who just were given the word of God, Didn't know a thing about redemption. Didn't know a thing about being made righteous. And God still said that about them in their fallen state. Are you going to tell me whom God has sent and has sanctified? God sanctified him by the virgin birth, if nothing else. You're going to tell me that I'm blaspheming because I say that I'm the son of God? Now, folks, again, that has a New Testament correlation. Is somebody going to complain because we say we're one with Jesus? That we're in Christ, who has been appointed heir of all things? Now, folks, this is where the devil will try to beat you up. You start trying to step up and and assume your place of righteousness and assume your authority in the earth. And the devil will say, who do you think you are? Well, let me answer that for you, Mr. Devil. I'm one with God. We're still talking about the nature of angels. You understand that and you can put your angels to work. Because the angels are Jesus' servants. But because you're in Christ, they're his servants so that they'll be your servants. Verse 37, if I do not the works of my father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works that you may know. And believe that the Father is in me and that I am in him. Therefore, they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. Back to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. We'll close with this. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for, not to, for those who shall be heirs of salvation? Do you understand why the ministering spirits, why the angels are sent to minister for you now? 
Because the Bible says in this world, this present world, not the old world, old world, the angels ruled. The world to come, Jesus rules along with us. We rule with him. The better way to say it, I guess. The present world, we're in charge. Man has dominion. And man has been commissioned to do the works of Jesus. That's why the ministering spirits are sent to minister for you as a child of God. What's the work Jesus gave us to do before he comes back? Occupy till I come. Occupy till I come. In other words, do the works of Jesus. Do exactly what Jesus would do in any situation. Conduct yourself just like Jesus would, knowing that you are in exactly the same place, a joint heir with Christ, just as Jesus said he was one with the Father, so are you. You remember what Jesus said on the cross or said to Peter in uh, um, uh, when he was going to Pilate's court? He said, Peter, I could call 12 legions of angels to deliver me at any moment that I wanted to. Well, if he could, so can you. Because you're a joint heir with Christ. You're in him. Why didn't he? Because what he did was important to carry out the, will, the work and the will and the plan of God. You've got angels at your side. You've got angels at your call. You've got angels at your right hand to help you do the work that God has given you to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we are joint heirs with Christ. Thank you, Father, that we have authority to do the work of the Father here on the earth. We recognize, Father, that the angels are ministering spirits sent forth to minister for us as heirs of salvation. Angels, as we learn more about you, we're going to put you to work. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit, so that we see who we are in Christ, so that we can effectively do the work of Jesus in our lives and get the work of the angelic powers to help. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.